Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, as I mentioned, I've, I've been on retreat. I was uh, at the Forest Refuge for most of uh, the month of December and uh, just got out. They let me out New Year's Day. <laughs> um, if you haven't been to the Forest Refuge which probably anybody here who has been to the Forest Refuge, I know there's Lori in the back. Anyone else? You have, yeah. So it's a really quiet place. <clears throat> it kind of, I think of it as, it, it, it makes Spirit Rock look a little like Grand Central Station. There's <laughs> <laughs> about uh, 30 people doing uh, self-retreat and um, you all, you're on your own schedule. There's one bell the day, uh, during the day, the 12 o'clock lunch gong. That's the one sound during the day. Uh, and besides that, there's a, an optional 8.30 in the morning sit. You have to kind of look at your watch. And um, uh, a couple of talks a week uh, by some of the, the teachers, but mostly it's a self-retreat. Um, oh, and a couple of interviews a week uh, also. But it's mostly for people who've done some practice and uh, uh, know the lay of the land a bit, and you go in. And um, it, was, it was so good. It was so wonderful. I, I, I became personally uh, re-inspired about practice and... Uh, even more for me personally, uh, re-inspired about about life, uh, which is kind of a, a mystery, a magical thing that that can happen when you're just getting quieter and quieter and getting away from everything in life. That you connect with something inside, and uh, it makes you at least it it, it can make you want to that much more um, love life. And uh, I, I was so grateful to have the time off and the time to go inside. And then you come back and you come into the, you know, the, the busyness of the world and get kind of a perspective on things because you're, you're not quite you're not quite in the fast lane yet, and you just kind of s- just hold things in a different perspective. Uh, a week ago, the thought of opening up my mouth, you know, it just seemed daunting, and uh, uh, and and here and here we are now. You know, you kind of some kind of still still enough in the retreat mode in my mind that I could actually uh, have some more moments of mindfulness than uh, than I you know, is usually available. Whereas you know it was it, it's still pretty quiet in there when I go inside. Um, anyway, as as we're 
in the uh, in the new year. This is the new year, and making that transition, I, it just I thought, what what could I talk about that would be relevant to all of us? And uh, I was inspired first by. Uh, column written by my favorite writer, I think I've mentioned him before, uh, Mark Morford, who uh, every Wednesday has a column uh, now just on online at San Francisco Gate, uh, SF Gate. He used to have a column in the, the print, but he, in the uh, printed paper, but he was, he's just so outrageous and brilliant and off the wall that it was too much for them to, to handle. Uh, but Wednesday is like my big day because ah, there's a Morford column waiting for me. And I was really uh, inspired by, he's a very, um, he's a very high guy, very cynical, very, you know, out there, off the wall, um, but he's a yoga, and a yoga teacher, and he's, he's got both a real edge and a deep, understanding at the same time. He's very funny. So I want to read a little bit of the column that inspired me, because this is, uh, this is the Dharma point, or part of the Dharma point that I want to make. Do you remember much of 2010? Is it already a big blur, a fading Polaroid, a smeary dreamscape of pain and wonder and random celebrity deaths? Do you remember, say, Mel Gibson's sociopathic rants, Gary Coleman's sad demise, Christine O'Donnell's ditzball witchcraft? Do you care much anymore? Of course you don't. Then again, in a way, you totally do, because you remember. It's all in there somewhere. Ain't it strange? This is the astonishing thing. All end-of-year look-backs at the major stories, scandals, dramas, and traumas contain one shared ingredient, one bizarre commonality built straight into their media DNA. How insanely fast we forget all about them. No sooner are we all a flutter, enraged, and a twitter over one issue or conflict than we shrug it off and leap onto the next incredibly important thing, barely remembering what all the fuss was about in the first place. It is your great reminder, repeated here for the thousandth time, all those events and spectacles we think are so imperative at the time, so mandatory to our very survival, vanish in almost an instant. The 24-hour news cycle coupled with our short attention spans and hooked into the fact that life is a ridiculous, mystical, circus, dreamgasm of joyful futility means, well, we don't understand nearly as much as we think we do. Also, the great play is still unfolding exactly as it should. Then he goes on to talk about all of these stories that are, you know, that, that captivated the, the attention of the, of the world. Some of them admittedly very um, impactful, like BP, oil spill, or other things like uh, that, that really made a shift or, or woke us up in one way or another. But most of the stuff, gone until the next very important thing. 
And as I read that column, and there I you know, had just come fresh out of the retreat, the, the analogy was striking that that's just like it is in here as well. All of the things that seem so important and so critical and such a big deal at the time. How many of those big things do you remember? How many of those really important happenings have you gone through this last year? Too many to recount. Now, every now and then, it's true, there is a really big deal. There's a shift that happens. There's usually an unexpected surprise. It's not like you're planning it and saying, aha, this is going to happen now, and then it happens. You say, yep, pretty clever. It's usually, oh, my God. Either, oh, my God, wow, or oh, my God, oh, no. But those are completely out of our control, not that we are thinking about them before they happen. And most of the other stuff just comes and goes. As I was sitting on the retreat and doing, um, mostly I was just hanging out with my breath. You know, and I'd open up from time to time and you know see uh, and, and you use other modes of awareness, but mostly it was just to be as simple as I could, to just be with my breath right here. I have a very good relationship with my nose. Anyway. Uh, and sometimes it would be with a sense of wonder, oh my goodness, each breath is so unique. And sometimes it would be with a sense of rest, oh, can, one can just put the awareness on the breath as a kind of resting place that you don't have to be bothered by anything else and just come to rest there and become calm or tranquil. This is not always, but but, but often that that can happen. And as you're doing that, there's all these thoughts that come that say, this is really important. This is really a big deal. No, 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 no. Forget about the breath. Come here. Check this out. And in that practice, you're just as we all know, it's easier to do sometimes, not for everyone and not all the time, of course, but in a place like the Forest Refuge, it's really supportive. It's at times easier to just see through the seductive, seductiveness of the thoughts. And uh, when you can see, then you can just let go of the thoughts sometimes. And in that practice, when you kind of get that every thought is just coming along with a hook that says, this is really important, and you don't bite the bait, it wasn't that important. And there's actually 
much more freedom in not biting the hook than in going for it. And um, made me think of a few lines uh, as I was practicing. Joseph has a, a couple of uh, a couple of Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, and a number of people here, I'm sure, is a, a teacher for, uh, has this line. As far as the practice, the meditation practice is concerned, nothing is worth thinking about. Nothing is worth thinking about. Now, that's not to say that in life nothing is worth thinking about. There's definitely important things to contemplate and reflect on and act on and be inspired and be motivated. But from the point of view of practice, the vantage point, nothing is worth thinking about. It's just another little hook. I I spoke with Joseph while I was there, and uh, he has this new uh, line for himself. He said, you know, there you are just being with the breath or lifting your foot or putting it down, and um, and then a thought comes along and carries you away, and it's usually about who else? You. And as you get carried away, it's like all of a sudden there's there's a, a new world that you're creating. And he said, you know, after, at some point I realized, oh, I'm dreaming myself into existence. And that became his, his little, little uh, label. Oh, dreaming myself into existence. In the teachings, it, uh, there's a, a famous line by the Buddha, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. But that's the real key to freedom, liberation through non-clinging, through not letting those hooks grab us. And as I was practicing, I had my own little version, just seeing how, you see how empty those thoughts are. They come out of nowhere, and they seem so real, but when you can see they're empty, just like, poof. Now, I think I I, I did mention here last year my ray gun practice, some people might remember in my in my daily life, sometimes a thought will come in that's kind of really jarring or scary or, you know, just imagining, you know, getting in a car crash or something like that. And I'd kind of pull out my mental ray gun and just go, oh, thinking, you know, and it would kind of dissolve. It's a, I had a, a variation of the ray gun practice. It just called, oh, it's empty. Each time I'd start to get swept away, oh, Empty, it's empty. And in letting go of the thoughts, there's a certain kind of um, surrender of that seduction and what comes out is a real trust, a real trust that you'll be okay, you won't die if you don't get, if you don't go with the thought. That's the thing, there's such a, such a a, 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 um, a draw, a pull, like, ooh, or ooh, and that's another way we get hooked. 
but a, a, a real surrender that says it's okay to let go and to not get hooked by this thought. If you can do it, and I'm not, you know, it's very different outside of retreat than inside. But you get better and better at it, I think, uh, uh, over time. At least you don't get lost for quite as long. That's what I've found. You know, as I say, I press the right button, I could be back in third grade in a moment in, with paranoia and judgment and pettiness or whatever. But what seems to happen over time is you don't get lost for quite as long. And that time lag shortening is, is a lot. Is, is everything to me. But when you realize that you can trust that there's something else besides the seduction of those thoughts, you see this moment is quite enough. This moment is complete just as it is. And it really is. And in that, in that, just connecting with here and now, the amazing thing is everything is revealed. That life wants to show itself to us when we're willing to bring a kind awareness to the moment. Everything is revealed in that simplicity. How the mind gets caught, how it can get uncaught, the freedom that comes from seeing how empty it all is. And out of that emptiness, out of seeing how insubstantial the thoughts are and seeing that there's an emptiness of the things, that there's, there's not these separate things called people and nouns and stuff, that it's all connected. And from that emptiness, there comes a kind of a, a sense of the, the interconnection that it all is. It's just life playing with itself through these, these forms. And there's a fullness that comes from that. There's a, a line in, in the Third Zen Patriarch I've quoted before. I love the Third Zen Patriarch says, stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Mm-hmm. And the, the amazing thing, as probably many of you know, it's such a creative space when you're not thinking your way through. Because there's something else that seems to want to use us and, and shine through when you're quiet, and you become like a kind of vessel for life to move through you and to use you. And from that, there's a kind of shift, a movement of the heart that opens us. Instead of the usual way that we go through life, What's in it for me? How does this relate to me? And whether stress is contracting us or confusion is contracting us or wanting is contracting us, in that openness, something often naturally happens where 
it's not so much what's in it for me, but what is it all about? What, what really does matter? If what's in it for me isn't going to be bringing me the happiness that I think, uh, what does? And there's a kind of natural, often a natural outflow as the heart opens. It's, oh, what do I have to offer the world? What do I have to give to the world? Shantideva, uh, a great um, uh, teacher in the 8th century or so, um, who who wrote the Bodhisattva's Guide to uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life? He says that in the miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. We kind of, as we as we waken a little bit, we all know this. You know how good it feels when the shift is from what's in it for me for me to what do I have to offer? How can I how can I be of service? Lifts us from out of poverty, the poverty mentality, into the wealth of giving to life. And in order to really find out what we have to give, we have to feel alive. There's an aliveness. I was looking for it when I went on the, on the retreat. You know, I just, I felt, you know, my life is so incredibly blessed. There's no, you know, I mean, really. And yet, sometimes I'd be bored, and sometimes I'd be saying, well, what's the next thing? You know, and just kind of like, I, I needed to, I wanted to come alive, and, 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 the, and the, I, I had a feeling the sitting would help me come alive. Um, and just to make sure, um, it just worked out that I had a little bit of a, a coach on aliveness. That was uh, before I left. A friend gave me a, um, a series of talks on tape by um, this guy who I've mentioned here before, who I just I'm so inspired by. He lives here in Berkeley. Uh, Brian Swim, I think he lives in Berkeley. He lives here in the in the Bay Area, uh, and he wrote a book, "The Universe Is a Green Dragon," which I turned. I love turning people onto that book. But I had not heard this series of 12 talks uh, called uh, Canticle to the Cosmos. I highly recommend them. And he is this scientist, this brilliant scientist slash spiritual um, um, uh, theologian, although he doesn't use God, but he merges science and, and, and the spirit. And this, this series of talks was um, about how life began from the Big Bang all the way through uh, life on uh, the galaxies, formation of galaxies, and then our planet and, and life on Earth, going through all the way through to the, the human 
story and the human place on this planet. And every, every evening, when it wasn't a Dharma talk night, you know, I'd go to the Dharma talks a couple of times, or those two times a week, but my real treat was, okay, I'd practice diligently during the day, and then like at 8 o'clock, okay, I'm going to get under the covers with my headphones and just get my mind blown and my heart open as he talked about the sacredness of life in in such fascinating it's like the it was the ultimate ultimate science teacher right and he'd say and i and i'd hear the talk during the during the evening, and then something he'd say would be kind of carrying me through the day, like the mystery of it all. And he'd say in this this wonderful little boyish way, you know, and I'd hear it ringing in my head the next day, you know, I find this so interesting. And then he'd go on and talk about it. Isn't it fascinating? You know? And that for me, just hearing his energy as well as what he was saying that was completely blowing my mind kind of sparked that place in me. Really, the essence of my practice is uh, it started when I was a kid. I, I, I've mentioned this before. When I was a kid in New York City and I dragged my parents to the Hayden Planetarium as often as I could. You couldn't see the stars so well in, in New York. But I'd go to the planetarium and just look up at the ceiling and just go, wow. Wow. You know that feeling? Wow. And that's what I could revisit uh, again uh, listening to these, these talks. And he made the point share a couple more things this time. He made the point when he got to towards the end that the in the human's place on this planet that the gift of the human we were made for a gawking as he says. We are we are given the gift of this awe and wonder that is life looking back on itself in a way that probably, who knows, but chances are there are very few other sentient beings on this planet that can look back at itself and be amazed that we're alive. Have you ever had that feeling have it had that thought come to you? Wow, I'm alive. And that can that used to take me right through to you know short circuit my my brain. I'm alive. What does that mean? I am alive. That life has come together in this form and can know itself. I didn't say that quite in those words when I was a little kid, but I I would say it's something like, what is it? How did life come together? Call me. We were made for gawking, as he says, that we have this capacity for awe and wonder, and that with that 
there can be delight and celebration and even more caring about it all. And that the key to unleashing that, to opening that place of childlike wonder is feeling our passion, feeling our aliveness. He says, this is the one quote that I, that I wrote down in my book, the sin, the real sin against the sacred is to convince yourself to continue to do what is repugnant and avoid doing what is fascinating to you. That's the real sin. What really matters when you, when you look back on your life, will you say, oh, I'm so glad I spent my life doing all the tasks that I'm supposed to have done, you know, or that other people wanted me to do. Is that what you're going to say? Is that what's going to give you real fulfillment? I did my to-do list very well. That's not going to do it, No. You'll want to know you appreciated life. You were present for it. That you appreciated the gift of it and that you enjoyed the ride. That you gave gave what your gifts are. At least that's what makes sense to me. That you not only enjoyed the ride, but that you loved well. You love the mystery of it all. And you offer your gifts in a joyful, caring way. So I came away re-inspired and wanting to encourage us all to find what makes us come alive. This is a quote maybe you're familiar with by Howard Thurman. He says, don't ask the world... Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs most is people who've come alive. In that clear comprehension of purpose, of what inspires you, there's something that's called forth from you that the world needs. This is uh, a few other quotes around this. Joseph Campbell, people say that what we're all seeking is a meaning of life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonances within our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being live. Another quote, Stephen Vincent Benet, life is not lost by dying, life is lost minute by minute, day by dragging day, in all the thousand small uncaring ways. And this one, I love, you may have heard this, I, I don't completely go along with the philosophy, but, uh, but you can get the essence. 
Life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather an opportunity to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up and totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. (laughs) I don't know about the totally worn out and thoroughly used up, but I like to, I'd like to imagine coming to the end and saying, wow, what a ride. Uh, author unknown. Yeah. <laughs> it's the mystery. Yeah. So what will help you come alive? That's why we practice, because as we become more conscious, we become we become more alive. Whether whatever it is this year, you know, taking it as a practice. A friend of mine um, last year took one precept and said, okay, I'm going to work with this precept of not having any wine, not having any intoxicants, and just, you know, just see what that's like. And they said, oh, this really helped me wake up to my habits, but also help me become clear. And they've decided this year to take another precept. I'm going to work with kind speech this year. It's, it's not like you have to you know, go to some you know, ex- extraordinary, exotic practices. Just what can help you become more conscious that brings you alive, that makes you alive, and getting in touch with your aliveness there. So first I'll just ask you to reflect, what will help you to become more alive? What will help you to wake up and grow and become more conscious and more connected to life? If you were to give yourself one practice for the year, Think what it might be as a gift to yourself. What we're not only what we're looking for within ourselves, but what the world needs is our passionate aliveness. Passion is a word that's it's not used very often in Buddhist teachings. But actually, the Buddha was incredibly passionate about awakening. And in one, one list I've mentioned here before, there is... There are these different qualities about spiritual passion where we see the urgency of the predicament and nothing is going to keep us from waking up or we have tremendous zeal or we fall in love with the Dharma and it's like a moth to a flame where we become so passionate about it that, that waking up is the, is the center of our life. That requires not only requires, that is born out of deep passion and love of life. So I wanted to close my part, actually, with a 
a piece that I've been playing before I went on the retreat uh, for actually uh, oh, a few weeks before. I would play this every day a bit about, uh, about passion that I've found very moving uh, and I want to share it with you. It's at six minutes, six and a half minutes. I think it's not going to be boring. Yeah. I think if, if any, uh, I hope it inspires you like it inspires me. And it's, uh, it's Andrew Harvey who is a very alive, passionate person talking about, um, uh, he's reading first a poem, a Rumi poem on passion, which is a beautiful poem. But after the poem, his own elucidation of the poem um, is uh, something that I think is a message we can all hear and, and take into uh, this coming year, uh, hopefully in a way that not only inspires us, but inspires everyone we, we know. So, go ahead. Hit it, Dave. Little, little lower. Little lower, just a bit. Passion burns down yeah. every branch of exhaustion. Passion is the supreme elixir and renews all things. No one can grow exhausted when passion is born. Don't sigh heavily, your brow bleak with boredom. Look for passion, 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 passion. Futile solutions deceive the force of passion. They are bandits who extort money through lies. Marshy and stagnant waters, no cure for thirst, however limpid and delicious it might look. It'll only trap you and stop you looking for fresh rivers that could feed and make flourish a hundred gardens, just as each piece of false gold prevents you from recognizing real gold and where to find it. False gold will only cut your feet and bind your wings, saying, I will remove your difficulties, when in fact it is only dregs and defeat in the name of victory. Run, my friends. Run far away from all false solutions. Let divine passion triumph and rebirth you in yourself. I believe that the return of Rumi in our time is no coincidence. I think that this tremendous message of passionate, devoted love to the divine and to the creation is the message that all of us, whoever we are and whatever religion we belong to, need to hear desperately, need to be inspired by desperately, because I believe that the world now can only be saved by people who have allowed their hearts to be inflamed by this sacred passion for reality, so that out of this deep, sober, peaceful, wild, profound 
own sacred passion for reality, we can start to act in what I call sacred activism to transform the planet on every level. When the mystic's passion for God is united with the activist's passion for justice, then a third force is created, which is ignited within the human, released within the cells of the human, and made active within the human. And this is really the core force of sacred activism. So to me, Rumi is the supreme poet of this movement of love in action, and his return to the world's consciousness is a divine gift to us at this moment. A peaceful, illuminated consciousness is not going to be enough. A loving, passionate consciousness without wisdom isn't going to be enough. But when peace and passion are married, when illumination and action are married, when prayer and profound activity born out of compassion are married, then what is born is the divine human in action. And it is this birth of the divine human that I believe is the great secret of the terrible and menacing and chaotic death that we are living through. In one of his greatest passages, Rumi says, when your heart is shattered open by heartbreak, what you find in the core of it is a fountain of deathless passion that never runs dry. And this poem is the poem of that deathless passion that never runs dry. And it's that deathless passion that never runs dry that I believe millions of people are now going to find in the middle of this heartbreak that we're going to be put through because the human race is now going through a dark night of the species that is a cosmic global equivalent of that shattering of the dark night that the mystic goes through to end the reign of the false self and begin the reign of the self-devoted in Ishq to the beloved, to the creation, to others. I have lived through a small part of this experience, and as I lived through its agony and horror and torment and ecstasy and revelation, it was this poem that accompanied me, because it was this poem that held out to me the life beyond the death that I was undergoing. And I think the last two lines have a tremendous message to us at this moment. Run far away, my friends, from all false solutions. Let divine passion triumph and rebirth you in yourself. And to me that means let yourself at last face how absolutely and with what insane intensity you are loved by the beloved. Let the shattering truth of that infinite love triumph over your ego, over your vanity, over your fears of abandonment, over your loneliness. Let that enormous, unconditional, crazy intensity of absolutely, compassionately passionate love that is streaming from the beloved at all moments finally and forever break upon you and irrigate your mind, illumine your heart and saturate the cells of your body so as to be birthed. Wow.
Just imagine going through your life just knowing that you are insanely loved by life, that you are life loving itself through you. And what that, what that does as far as your expression in the world, how much you care, not just about yourself, not just about those close to you, about life, about this planet, coming from that care and that love and that consciousness. That's what we're here for. And that's what the world needs. So it's a, it's a real honor to and an extraordinary gift for us to, to sit together in quiet and support each other being as conscious and awake and open to the mystery as, as we can support ourselves in, in doing that together. And I, I hope you see, see that as part of this coming year, that this year is not just about ourselves, but about what we can give to the world, how, how our own love can be expressed and make a difference in the world. Stop here. The, uh, we have time. If there's any comments, questions, or yeah, maybe you can just uh, pass this. I guess. What was I going to say here? Um, Speak a uh, oh. bit close. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess you were talking about. Um, I think I understand it, but I thought maybe you could go over it a little more about, um, you know, when you were talking about, like, all the, th- the thoughts and things coming uh-huh. from somewhere or whatever. Uh-huh. And then you were saying that, you know, that that's during the practice, when, when we're in practice. Mm-hmm. But, but it sort of just happens whether you're in practice or not. I mean, I don't. All those thoughts are coming and going. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but you made a distinction saying, well, you know, in, let's see if I can find my notes and where that was said there. Um, I have a question mark. Oh, yeah. You said uh, from that, there is a shift, a, a movement. What's in it for me? Um, that's not it either. I can't find where I was going to talk about. Darn it. Um, I guess, okay, I'll have to do it my own words. Just Yeah, use your own words. And we'll we'll be going in just a few moments. If you can stay, that would be really great. We can end together. Okay, yeah. I guess I'm just trying to figure out why there has to be such a big difference between the practice and your just walk through life. I mean, because what's the difference between? Yeah, I mean, I know I know some what? people just meditate all the time. Well, it's it's very um, it's very hard for most people 
to notice the mind with any space, with as much space as when you're on retreat. Because in that busyness, there's a stress that I think some of us can relate to. Mm -hmm. And stress contracts the mind and it agitates. It's like it puts it in a smaller kind of a, a, a container. And in that stress, it makes it harder to see clearly. That's where uh, it's a kind of training ground on a, on a retreat, a training ground where you get enough space, where you can quiet down and see, oh, that's what goes on in the mind. And in that, you, you get in touch with how it works. And that can carry over in that perspective in your daily life. But it takes, it takes some practice to see that clearly and the, the less stress there are. Like the Buddha said, find a, a seclusion and go to, there are trees and there are roots of, of trees. Get some space so you can see how this mind works and then you can carry that forward into your daily life. That's yeah, I guess I found, you said nothing is worth, is worth thinking about. On a retreat. But from the point of view of practice. Yeah. I guess I'm a little confused. Well, there are some things that are very much worth thinking about, like how can I make a difference in the world, that you don't want to dismiss all the thoughts. But you need to see how empty those thoughts are. Thoughts are as empty as they are or as, as you see them to be or as real as you believe them to be. But it takes enough space so you can discern between oh, what thoughts you want to sure. give energy to and which ones you can let fly by. It takes some practice to let those thoughts fly by. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I was reading an article in the Shambhala Sun last night. I don't remember who it was by, but um, one thing that struck me, it was about the cosmos and seeing everything in the bigger picture. And one thing that this writer said was that we're also the only species, as far as we know, that has the consciousness to know what we've got. <laughs> yeah, that's, and I was like, "Wow, oh yeah, you know what a gift that is." Yeah. You know, and, and uh, that's that's the point that I was making. We have yeah. this self-reflexive awareness that we can know ourselves and know that we have consciousness. That's amazing. It's an amazing gift. Yeah. We have a. Maybe time for one last comment, if there is. Okay, let's just uh, close with a loving kindness. And uh, just as you sit here, you might put your attention in your heart center, that place that we think of that can touch or be touched by others. Take a few deeper breaths and breathe in all the, the goodness from around. There's so much here that we're all sharing. And let it touch you and open your heart. And as you breathe out, just radiate that out. Surround yourself and offer it as a gift to everyone. For a moment, just reflect on your goodness, your sincerity, 
the kindness that comes out of you, caring, that you can't even take credit for. It's just been a gift. But it's a blessing. And it's yours in your own unique way. And wish some kind thoughts to yourself first. May I feel all the the love that's inside and share it well. May I connect with the clarity and the wisdom that's inside and more and more allow it to reveal itself. May I see through my suffering and transform it into compassion. May I wake up. And now, expressing that, sending those thoughts to everyone here and out, extending to all beings everywhere, just knowing as all beings get in touch with their own goodness, we all benefit. May all see through their fears and confusion. May all be safe from harm. May all connect with their love and share it well. May all come to the end of their suffering and be liberated. And may our coming here together, sharing the Dharma, be of benefit not only to ourselves, but to everyone in our lives and to all beings everywhere. One last time, Happy New Year. (laughs) Have a great week. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.